0: It's been 3,135 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 218 days since the large scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia Ukraine War. The Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies. Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian millbloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth. Because the truth matters. <laughs> As we always do, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that the so-called Putin line east of the Oskil River was in collapse was accurate. The next offensive line will either be Svatov or Rubizhne in Luhansk, but currently Russia lacks the personnel and equipment to protect both. Second, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Third, we assess that dissatisfaction with mobilization will increase as the news of the collapse of the Putin line filters into the public sphere, as the Kremlin has not taken any steps to prepare the public. Fourth, we assess that the Russian Federation is using the explosions on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines to justify additional escalation and attempt to draw NATO into a kinetic war. Creating this environment will enable the full mobilization of the Russian people and the declaration of martial law while striking its supply depots, troop positions, and flights supporting Ukraine. In our assessment, we have entered a dangerous phase, and the next 72 hours will reveal the intentions of an increasingly unpredictable Kremlin. Fifth. Our assessment that the broader mobilization and breaking of the social contract with the Russian people could increase the risk of political upheaval remains accurate, with civil unrest continuing. Sixth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction-instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. Seventh, our assessment that the Kremlin would wait until October for annexation based on signals from the Duma was incorrect. The results of the sham referendums and the coming annexation announcement will not change the tactics or strategy of Ukraine or its Western supporters. On the contrary, it may have the opposite effect. 8. We maintain our assessment that as the situation for Russian troops in Kherson worsens due to supply issues and battlefield conditions, troops will seek to surrender. And finally, last but definitely not least, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed, and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse. The 1st Army Corps, 2nd Army Corps, 3rd Army Corps, 1st Guards Tank Army, 6th Combined Arms Army, 11th Army Corps, and the 20th Combined Arms Army are combat-destroyed, and will take years to reconstitute and fully rearm. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Ukraine continues to maintain tight operational security, with limited information released. There was also very little information from Russian sources. Ukrainian positions in Pravdine were shelled, according to the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU. We maintain the town is a no-man's land, where neither belligerent can maintain control. They also reported that Blachodatne in Kherson came under fire. Fighting for control of Bezimen, the one in Kherson, continued for the third day, with Ukrainian forces maintaining a stiff defense. There were also reports of Sukistavok and Blachodativka being shelled. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that the Russian stronghold in Davribryd was successfully, quote, suppressed. The attack destroyed a large command and control center for Russian drone operations. There have been numerous videos we've geolocated and shared in earlier reports showing Russian positions and equipment being attacked by drones, artillery, special operation forces, and the Ukrainian Air Force. Ukrainian positions in Arkhangelsk and Ivanivka were shelled, and Ukrainian forces fired on Russian positions in Novopetrivka. Drone-directed artillery destroyed a Russian infantry fighting vehicle. Myroly in Free Ukraine was attacked with grad rockets launched by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. We'll have more info on that for you in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. OCS reported that a squad of Russian soldiers attempted to do reconnaissance, quote, in the area of Osarivka. The group was discovered, came under fire, suffered losses, and retreated. OCS reported that the Ukrainian Air Force completed 12 airstrikes and ground forces launched 276 fire missions, a significant increase from yesterday. A Russian command post and two ammunition depots for an unspecified unit were destroyed in Berislav, reportedly wounding 40 and killing up to 15. We cannot independently verify the number of casualties. Russian troop concentrations awaiting deployment or river crossing of the Dnipro and Inulets rivers were attacked in Kherson, Novokachovka, and Darivka. Ukraine maintained fire control over the Dnipro river crossing, concentrating on the semi-functional bridging repair at the Kachovka Dam and the south bank of the Dnipro in Novokachovka, where Russian troops and equipment moving in a column were attacked twice. The Electromash factory in Novokokhovka used by Russian troops as a barracks and for equipment staging, was heavily damaged by rockets fired by HIMARS. Russian combat engineers are renewing efforts to repair the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson. Ukrainian sources claim heavy construction equipment and materials are accumulating on the structure. Russian troops staged in Velika Kardashinka were attacked by rockets fired by HIMARS, and Russian troops and an ammunition depot in Novokuban were destroyed. Despite the interdiction efforts by the Ukrainian armed forces, up to 2,000 untrained conscripts from Russian-occupied Crimea have arrived in Kherson. Partisans reported that civilian residents of Kherson are being kicked out of apartments and hostels to make room for the arriving conscripts. Yuri Sobolevsky, deputy head of Kherson Regional Council, claimed that yesterday's gas pipeline explosion in Russian-occupied Brilivka was an industrial accident caused by Russian engineers. The pipeline was connected to a pumping station located in Russian-occupied Crimea on September 24th. The pressure increased dramatically, causing a rupture in Brilivka, which then caught fire. The fire has been controlled, and Russian engineers were evaluating the damage. Video from Russian sources recorded at the scene did not support accusations by the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, of an external kinetic event, and clearly showed the pipeline experienced a rupture. The Russian MOD claims they destroyed a Ukrainian radar site that supports S-300 anti-aircraft launchers in the region. Russian sources claim a Ukrainian Su-24 was shot down near Mykolaiv. Online videos circulating in the Russian information space are either misattributed or fake. The video shows an aircraft being shot down by manpads, while semi-reliable Russian sources and the Russian MOD reported the Su-24 was shot down by an aircraft. Rockets armed with cluster bombs struck the city of Mykoliv, and there is more information on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Five Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 Kamikaze drones also targeted Mykolaiv Oblast. Three were shot down, one crashed into an administrative building in Mykolaiv, and the fifth hit a civilian infrastructure target. Our overall assessment of Kherson and Mykolaiv remains unchanged from September 11th. We recapped it on Monday's episode around minute three or four. <laughs> Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported two more landmines exploded outside the perimeter of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on September 29th. Previous explosions on September 27th and 28th were determined to be caused by animals. Like, actual wild animals. A false report circulated that a fire had started in the turbine deck of Reactor 2. This claim was quickly dismissed by our own research team and Russian sources. Some pro-Russian mill bloggers made false claims a Ukrainian artillery strike caused the explosions, while the Russian MOD didn't mention any attacks on the plant or surrounding area in their morning report. IAEA Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi expressed his deep concern about the repeated occurrence of landmine explosions near Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Another shipment of critical equipment, spare parts and supplies, donated by Sweden, arrived at ZNPP after passing through Russian checkpoints from Free Ukraine into the occupied territories. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Nikopol and Chervonohriivka were attacked by Russian artillery and grad rockets fired by MLRS. Artillery shells damaged several homes in Nikopol, while Cervano-Riurivka suffered heavier damage, including businesses, homes, a water main, and the power grid. Iskander-M short-range ballistic missiles, or SRBM, attacked the city of Nipro, the first attack to use SRBMs in at least two weeks. The bus barn for the city transportation system was struck, with 52 vehicles destroyed and another 98 damaged. Missiles also damaged apartment buildings a city administrative building, businesses, and a gym. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. There was still only sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Juliapola to Oryhiv. A video emerged of Ukrainian counter-battery only identified as, quote, "...in the south." a Russian 2S-5 Hyacinth-S self-propelled howitzer and two Ural trucks full of ammunition explode during the strike. Ukrainian counter-battery accuracy continues to increase across the theater. Ukrainian suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense continued, with a Russian base in Tokmak hit by rockets fired from HIMARS, destroying two S-300 air defense rocket launchers and wounding up to 50 Russian troops. Now, as we previously mentioned, we cannot independently verify troop casualty numbers. In southwestern Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic or DNR militia did not make any claims about ground fighting or successes on the battlefield. Honestly, we find that a little odd, as they did have success in Mayorsk today, so we're not entirely sure why they didn't mention it in the general report. Ukrainian forces launched 1,506 fire missions on the occupied territories of the Donetsk Oblast. Officials claim that the elements of the DNR 1st Army Corps, supported by the Russian Federation Armed Forces, or RFAF, destroyed one tank and three armored personnel carriers. The GSAFU, Ukrainian and Russian sources reported minimal fighting but increased artillery fire. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to advance on New York for the first time since late August. There was positional fighting in Pyrvomysk, and the GSA a few reported that Ukrainian positions in Pisky were shelled. Yep, I said Pisky, again. We're not prepared to update the map, but it did catch our attention after the September 28th report from Russian sources that DNR troops in the area suffered significant losses during a failed offensive. Fighting continued in the area of Pavlivka with no change in the situation. In the Bakhmut area, it's Groundhog Day. Again. They say that when Yevgeny Prigozhin emerges from his bunker and sees his own shadow, it means six more weeks of war. Quick sidebar for people who don't know what Groundhog Day is, it's a holiday, I guess, in the United States where we believe a groundhog will predict the weather for us. Uh, see, if he emerges from his den and sees his shadow, it means we'll have six more weeks of winter. Which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how far north you live it Anyway, heavy fighting was reported on the southern edge of Bakhmutska, with private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, unable to break through Ukrainian defenses. Near Solidar, a video emerged showing a platoon-sized group of Russian-aligned troops retreating in panic on foot, while under drone-directed artillery fire. The video is available on our Twitter, and we of course link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Quick editor's note, though, the video is misattributed to Lehman, but was geolocated after publication to Solidar. We thank you for your understanding as we cut through the fog of war. Wagner continued fighting near Vesela Dolina and Zaitseve, which was positional in nature. The PMC has not been able to capitalize on the tactical success of capturing the electrical transformer farm on the eastern edge of Vesela Dolina. This is despite using penal units for wave attacks and wearing Ukrainian uniforms, in violation of the Geneva Convention and accepted military protocol. Alexei Nahin, a commander with PMC Wagner known by his call sign of Tetik, died in combat near Bakhmut on September 20th. PMC Wagner only fought skirmishes near Odradivka and Kurdyumivka. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade was able to advance past the railroad yards of Mayorsk and attack Ukrainian positions. We hear that Major General and aspiring dentist Don Don Ramzan Kyodirov dismissed the advance, saying, Don, we just loosened the jar lid for you, Don. Okay, he did not say that, but we feel a need to soften up the not-so-warm-and-fuzzy part that's coming up. Okay, let's just get straight to it. This is assessment here. An Australian-based analyst that we trust, who specializes in risk assessment in global conflict, issued what can only be described as an alarming public warning, that the risk Russia will be compelled to use a tactical nuclear weapon is increasing. In their analysis, they stated that Bakhmut would be a probable location because Russian forces have not been able to make any progress in the region for two months. They believe the city would be a prime target because the fighting currently has low publicity, Ukraine has a significant concentration of Ukrainian troops and equipment in the region, and there is a relatively low number of civilians left in the city. In our assessment, a tactical nuclear strike would likely be preceded by a partial withdrawal of forces, the end of drone flights, and the appearance of a lull in artillery fire. You know what? Let's move on to northeast Donetsk and Luhansk. Russian forces in Liman, Derelova, Drobosheve, Stavki, and Zarichne have been encircled after the liberation of Yampil. At the time of recording, it was reported that the Russian defenses at Drobosheve had collapsed. Russian mill bloggers and PMC Wagner telegram channel Greyzone reported that Ukrainian forces have already crossed the Zerebets River and taken control of the Torsky svatov ground line of communication, called a Gloc that's a supply line. The estimated number of encircled Russian troops ranges from 500 to 3,500. It includes members of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR, the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, elements of the Russian 20th Combined Arms Army, and the Russian Bars-13 Russia Legion and Bars-16. This is the largest grouping of soldiers encircled by either belligerent since the war in Ukraine started. The Droboshevy Zarychne, Limin Zarychne, Zarychne Kremina, and Starky Svatov g are all severed. Additionally, the entire area is under Ukrainian fire control by artillery, MLRS, and HIMARS. Heavy fighting is reported on the edges of Lehman and Drobosheve, with pro-Russian sources claiming they are failed Ukrainian advances. In our assessment, they are more likely to be breakthrough attempts by Russian troops in the cauldron. Ukrainian tactics have consistently avoided attacking strongholds head-on. Earlier in the day, a Russian soldier reported their evacuation from Lehman, saying, quote, "...on the way, I barely escaped the mortars twice." the armed forces of Ukraine preemptively shelled the road. It helped that I slowed down the car, then gave gas. Drones fly everywhere. The shooting on the outskirts of Lehman is tough. End quote. That report was made during the technical encirclement. Another video, which was only located in Donetsk Oblast at the time of recording, showed a Russian convoy under fire as they crossed a dirt road in an open field. All three vehicles were hit, with the lead vehicle destroyed first. Let's pause for some assessment here, okay? We work with people smarter than us so that we can provide assessments that our readers and listeners trust. The community we talk to believes that the military disaster in Lehman was caused by interference or direct orders by Russian President Vladimir Putin. He reportedly took a hands-on role in commanding Russian Federation military forces earlier in the month. Military analysts have told us that advancing the remaining reserve from the 20th Combined Arms Army, or CAA, and an attempt to push unprepared conscript forces into the salient was a very poor decision. In addition to Yampil, Shandrachalov has been liberated, and the fighting has moved to the administrative borders of Drobosheve. Our map at the time of recording may be conservative. Pro-Russian mill blogger Rybar reported that rockets fired by HIMARS struck Russian troop concentrations in Kremina, Svatov, Vrubivka, and Zolote. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that a rocket attack fired by HIMARS killed up to 50 Russian troops in Novoidar, and the hospitals in Starobilsk are filled to capacity with wounded Russian soldiers. Russian forces attempted another advance on Viemka, and were once again unsuccessful. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Ukraine has implemented tight operational security on activity east of the Oskil River. Russian sources only shared low-quality information about artillery strikes. We know that fighting continues along a broad front, but don't have specific information. Russian forces did a picture report from Bodova, intending to give a we-are-still-here message and instead implying that a withdrawal is happening. A squad-sized group of troops in a civilian pickup loaded with gear in the bed roamed through the central square of Bodova, while artillery and rockets fired from MLRS thundered in the background. The video showed that the defensive positions built by Russian troops were empty, and there weren't any military vehicles or artillery pieces anywhere in the square. Russian and Soviet battle flags still flew— and a lone dog watched from a doorstep as the soldiers recorded. The squad had entered Borova, which appeared to be a ghost town, from the north, and were only one block from the tree line on the edge of town. Some assessment here. This looked a lot more like, we're the last men out, versus, we're ready to fight and bring it on. In the Cherniev and Sumi region, Dimitro Živitsky, Sumi oblast administrative and military governor, Reported the Romadas of Bilopilska, Snobnovchorodska, Chalachinska, Esmanska, Krasnopilska, Seredinabudska, and the village of Yunakivka were hit with over two hundred artillery shells and mortars. The attacks knocked out electrical service and the internet. We have more information in the war crimes and human rights segment. In the Black Sea, Crimea and Odessa region, three Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones were shot down over the Black Sea near Odessa. At the time of recording, there wasn't any additional information. So, moving on to the Russian front. In Bilgorod, the Russian information space went wild with accusations that Ukraine had launched a large-scale missile attack on the city. It was walked back by local officials in Bilgorod who reported the blasts were actually caused by another S-300 anti-aircraft missile launch failure. The director of a subsidiary of Russian Railways mysteriously shot himself on the balcony of his Moscow apartment. So we link to a video from Russian state media in our full situation report on Patreon. Because it covered a spectrum of topics, it seemed to fit best under the generic Russian front. Vladimir Solovyov, who could be described as Russia's Tucker Carlson for an American audience – read into that as you want – was in a dark mood over the current situation. In the five-minute video, he frets about the impact mobilization has on the Russian economy, the lack of victories, the disproportionate mobilizations of ethnic minorities in rural areas, and the hundreds of thousands who have fled Russia. He also sighs. A lot. A lot. After wallowing in reality, Solovyov goes back to blaming the West for the war, and that Russia was left with no choice. He also violated the on-air don't-say-war law, but he and his co-hosts have received a hall pass multiple times in the past. The video has subtitles in case you don't speak Russian, and it's worth your time if you're interested in Russian state media and what exactly is being said. (laughs) Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin will give a speech on September 30th, 1500 Moscow time, to announce the Russian Federation's annexation of Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson oblasts in their entirety. Putin will claim all territory of the oblasts, and potentially a sliver of the Mykolaiv oblast currently occupied, as part of Russia and under its defense protection. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's office announced another meeting of the staff of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief was held early on September 30th Seattle time that's Pacific Daylight Time. Zelensky said that the meeting listened to reports from commanders about ongoing operations and considered further plans for liberating Ukrainian territory from Russia. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg will hold an unplanned press conference on September 30th at 1900 Kiev time. No information was given on what the topic of the speech would be. A day earlier, NATO released a terse statement about sabotage on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, saying, quote, We, as allies, have committed to prepare for, deter, and defend against the coercive use of energy and other hybrid tactics by state and non-state actors. Any deliberate attack against the Allies' critical infrastructure would be met with a united and determined response. End quote just going to throw a quick assessment in here, the truth matters. We aren't building our backyard bunker, but Friday, September 30th has the potential to be one of the most important days in world history. It has been absolutely zero days since Russia has threatened nuclear war, and the language has gotten pretty dark. On Vladimir Solovyov's self-titled show on the Russia One network, his panel argued that Russia could never make peace with Ukraine, They argued negotiating peace would require working with the, quote, Ukronazis, which is a slur used by Russians, because it would be an admission this special military operation failed. If Putin backs down, it will only demonstrate to the Russian people that his judgment was weak and break his power. Maxim Yusin said an even darker tone, saying on Russian state media that there may only be days or weeks left until a nuclear apocalypse, so people should, quote, Have fun, because it would be a shame to live out the remaining time with pessimism. End quote. Okay, back to assessment. A common refrain from the Russian disinformation space from March to May was, but Russia has nukes, in many comments. Some of this posturing is not meant for the Russian audience, but to try and convince the world to let Russia win or else. This is also known as the mutually assured destruction instability paradox. We've talked about this. Three Russian Su-30SM fighter planes have been stationed in Belarus. The Su-30SM is one of the few Russian aircraft that can launch the Kh-32 hypersonic cruise missile, which can be armed with a tactical or strategic nuclear warhead. There are additional reports that Belarus's self-declared president, Alexander Lukashenko, agreed to allow up to 120,000 Russian soldiers to deploy to his nation from November to February. It is worth noting that no one in the intelligence community sees any signs of Belarus mobilizing or taking steps that would support a renewed invasion of Kyiv. Lukashenko has demonstrated he is a very uncool version of Lando Calrissian who has avoided having to utter, quote, "This deal keeps getting worse all the time." End quote. The United States website Politico reported that Pentagon officials have reached out to their counterparts in India and China to urge the Russian Federation not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine because it will be met with a, quote, Russia has not made a detailed and specific claim on who they believe sabotaged the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. We had earlier reported that Russian sources documented NATO helicopters in the area where the leaks occurred and that an American P-8 submarine hunter had detected one or two of the explosions hinting the attack was done by a submarine or submersible. Journalist Samuel Romani reported that data shows Russian naval ships were in the area at the time of the blasts. Of course, none of this provides concrete evidence of anything, and it wouldn't be unusual for Russian ships to be sailing in the Baltic Sea past Denmark or for NATO helicopters to monitor their activity. A flimsy report from a single South Korean publication claims the United States has agreed to purchase $2.9 billion in military equipment from the nation to support Ukraine, and that the transfer will move through the Czech Republic. South Korea has the world's largest stock of NATO artillery ammunition and domestically produces tanks and fighter airplanes. We can't confirm the veracity of the report at this time, but we are investigating. United States Senator Lindsey Graham made a cryptic statement about tanks to Ukraine, saying, quote, I hope that in the coming days we will be able to do something to provide the Ukrainian defense forces with more modern tanks, End quote. The statement came out almost simultaneously with the South Korean weapons purchase report. A Russian military officer made an unverified claim that the Russian Federation was sending M-1943 D-1 howitzers to be issued to the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. The D-1 was introduced in 1943 and was built into the early 1950s. The Russian Federation has some pieces which fire a different version of a 152mm shell in inventory and high-explosive and fragmentation shells. The D-1 has a very low muzzle velocity compared to more modern Russian systems developed from the 1950s to 1980s. It will be effective against troops and light vehicles, but will struggle against tanks. A John Hopkins hospital anesthesiologist and her spouse, a United States Army major and military doctor, have been indicted after prosecutors alleged that they conspired to share top-secret medical records of important patients with Russia. For some quick context, John Hopkins is a premier hospital and medical research facility in the United States. Anna Gabrielian and Major Jamie Lee Henry believed they were communicating with Russian agents. Major Henry was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Gabrielian is alleged to have been contacted by undercover FBI agents, believing she was talking with the Russian GRU. She told agents that the couple was prepared to assist Russia with their fight in Ukraine and had attempted to contact the Russian embassy directly when the war started. Gabrielian was, quote, motivated by patriotism toward Russia, end quote, and believed their spouse could share information about how the United States sets up field hospitals during combat. Speaking of patriotism towards Russia, let's talk about Russian mobilization, the governor of Dagestan was furious after the Russian commissariat drove through the city of Derbien, announcing on loudspeakers that all male citizens were required to report to military recruiting offices. In Vladivostok, the commissariat is going into apartment buildings and sets off fire alarms, conscripting men as they try to leave the building. As the word spread about the new tactic, people no longer left their units— forcing the commissars to tape notices on the doors of the men they were seeking. The Commissariat of the DNR has recruited another 250 convicts out of penal colonies in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic to fight in the ongoing war. Penal units have not fought well, with an extremely high casualty rate and unconfirmed reports that some units surrender at the first opportunity. PMC Wagner shared complaints from the Mobilized that their civilian employers were firing them illegally and no longer paying their salaries. Yagok, a mining company, was explicitly called out for their actions. The company allegedly refused to pay a crude vacation and canceled their holiday bonuses. In the federal district of Sacha, the commissariat has received over 2,000 appeals asking to waive mobilization in a week. In one example, a 48-year-old appealed their mobilization on the ground they hadn't served in the military in decades, had no combat experience, and the Kremlin had previously stated no one over 35 would be called to service. We had warned in an earlier report that Ukrainian leadership should not underestimate their enemy and that the point of view on mobilization will skew to all the problems. Showing success doesn't get clicks. Conscripts in Tatarstan shared a video of makeshift barracks and training centers showing soldiers had access to beds, bedding, clean facility, quality equipment, and were well-fed. In contrast, fistfights broke out among conscripts while a lieutenant colonel addressed the room in another large staging area in a stadium or meeting facility. This is one of the more surreal videos we've watched since the war started. We link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. On the other end of the spectrum, video from conscripts in the Khabarovsk Federal District showed their barracks were unfit for human habitation. The floors were covered in dirty water due to a sewage pipe leak, which forced the water to be turned off. Most of the plumbing fixtures had been stripped as if the building was a practice location for looting in Ukraine and filled with garbage. The broken sinks that remained in the bathroom were beyond disgusting and appeared to be filled with dead insects. The bottom of the pile was near Pyrm, where conscripts were dropped off in a field with no shelter or way to stay warm in below-freezing weather with patches of snow already on the ground. No one from the commissariat or military met them, and no equipment was provided. The Mobics, a.k.a. the newly mobilized, were told to figure out their shelter for the evening and that someone would come tomorrow. Quick sidebar here— I'm pretty sure this is how horror movies start, and you guys should run. Russian mobilization. Your experience will vary. Alexander Chodakovsky complained that the most recent batch of conscripts to arrive in Ukraine, likely as part of the defunct Third Army Corps, had the quote, behavior of an animal released into the wild, born and raised in a zoo. End quote. He complained they were untrained and made the most basic mistakes when setting up defenses. The same company of Russian conscripts accidentally drove a column of vehicles into Ukrainian territory, abandoned their vehicles, and ran straight into kill zones. Okay, assessment here? That right there is the difference between no training and two to five weeks of training. David wrote a note here, something, 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 Gen X reference, blah, 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 blah. Rocky 4, I guess? I don't, whatever that means. Seven foot tall former world boxing champion Nikolai Voluov announced the Russian military had mobilized him. In our war crimes and human rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is graphic detail in today's report. And if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A convoy of evacuees from Russian occupied Zaporizhia Oblast carrying humanitarian aid and mustering in a designated Green Corridor was intentionally shelled by Russian forces. At least twenty-three civilians, including children, were killed, and another twenty-eight gravely injured according to Oleksandr Staruk, Administrative and Military Governor of the Oblast. Extremely graphic photos have emerged, showing decapitated and mutilated victims, including children. Viewer discretion is highly advised. These are not suitable for work, but if you do want to see them, we have the link in our full situation report on Patreon. Again, though, viewer discretion is highly advised. Ukraine has suspended all attempts to cross into Free Ukraine through the Green Corridor after the attack. If you have a loved one that was staged to cross and is missing, you can call 050-452-9195. You will need to be able to speak fluent Ukrainian or Russian when you call. In recently liberated Myrolyubivka in northern Kherson Oblast, one civilian was killed and another wounded in a Grad rocket attack. The city of Mikolive was hit with cluster munitions deployed by smirch rockets. The attack killed three civilians instantly at a bus stop and wounded 12 more who were hospitalized. A heartbreaking video showed a husband weeping uncontrollably over his wife's body as she lay on the sidewalk. The use of cluster bombs is not a war crime, and they are not illegal weapons under the rules of war. However... The intentional use of cluster munitions on civilians or in civilian areas to target a military object where more precise weapons are available can be considered a war crime. In Pavlivka, Oblast, two people were severely wounded and one killed in a cross-border mortar attack launched by Russia. In Dnipro, three generations of a family were killed in a Russian strike. The bodies of a grandmother, mother, and two children lay under the rubble. In another heartbreaking video, the family dog survived and absolutely devastatingly refused to leave the broken remains of the house. Sergei Zavdoviev, a so-called deputy of parliament of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, admitted on video that LNR, DNR, and Russian forces intentionally placed their military equipment in residential areas. No word yet on if Amnesty International will write a report about it. Two Russian soldiers, Rinat Hakimianov and Arslan Salikhanov of the 90th Tank Regiment, have been identified as the two men who beat and raped a woman in Velika Dimirka during the failed Kiev offensive in March. The unidentified woman was three months pregnant and lost her baby after being violated. A criminal case has been opened against the pair, who are currently not in custody. The town of Novovorontsovka, Kherson, sits on the administrative border of Dnipropetrovsk and has been subject to almost continuous fighting since March. Despite appeals to evacuate, many of the poor, elderly, and disabled refuse due to having no resources and believing they will not have enough social support. We include a photo in our full situation report showing a Ukrainian elder seated on the floor of a dirty concrete basement, surrounded by empty plastic water bottles, stained blankets, and small plastic shopping bags with their belongings. Ukraine announced that all Russian prisoners of war would be allowed to call home, quote, every few days, for 15 minutes to keep their mental health normal. Quick assessment here. As altruistic as this sounds, the truth matters. It will certainly provide a positive impact on the prisoners' mental health, but it will also provide a propaganda victory if there are reports of fair treatment and it will be an opportunity to gather social and military intelligence. In the positive column, it provides an extra check and balance to assure that Ukrainian guards are not maltreating the wards under their charge. In Donetsk, Ukraine is accused of shelling the city's center again, with Russian state media showing an accountant who was killed at her desk while working when shrapnel flew through her window. This was a really rough war crime report today. So let's all just take a deep breath. Russia and Ukraine made another small prisoner of war swap. There were six Ukrainians released, including the first two civilians. Ukrainian military officers Oleksiy Bulakhov and Mykola Kostenko, soldiers Lyudmila Garasimenko and Ivan Zemlyaney, and civilians Victoria Andrusha and Yana Mayboroda were welcomed back to free Ukraine. Yana Mayboroda had been arrested in the opening days of the war in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone for having pictures of Russian equipment on her phone and for sharing intelligence with the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine. There was no information made available from the Russian Federation on how many or who was released. In geopolitical news, Russian President Putin signed two decrees recognizing the Zaporizhia and Kherson oblasts in their entirety as independent territories, similar to the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Cuba's head diplomat said the island nation 90 miles from the coast of Florida has quote, no choice but to begin negotiations to normalize relations with the United States. Foreign Minister Bruno Rodríguez Paria told the U.S. news agency The Hill that the first step would have to come from Cuba. While there is a belief that the Cuban and United States political relationship has always been strained, Cuba allowed stranded United States airliners to land after the 9-11 attacks. The nation works cooperatively with Hurricane Hunter aircraft overflights, and the United States has provided humanitarian, engineering, and technical assistance. The Obama administration had started the process of normalizing relations with the island nation, which was reversed by the Trump administration, which placed Cuba on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Assessment here? After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1994, the Cuban economy collapsed with it due to the withdrawal of Soviet foreign aid, military spending, and the collapse of tourism. We believe the overture from Cuba is due to the government reading the room and concluding that Russian financial aid, military support, and tourism will dwindle again. But, you know, everything is going according to plan. In economic news, the ruble declined, falling back to an exchange rate of 60 for one U.S. dollar. Crude oil prices dropped, with WTI trading at $80 a barrel and Brent at $88 a barrel. United States' RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market fell to $2.48 a gallon, or $0.66 a litre. Chicago SRW wheat futures will close the week steady at $9.08 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.